This is the final word story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The last time that we are recording separately before we will be together again running across a field of flowers to embrace uh, when we join up before the T20 World Cup, which starts in a few days from the time of recording uh, at the moment. I'm back in Melbourne, just landed today, extremely sleepy, very jet-lagged, very ready to have a nap. So we'll see if I can make it through this program, Adam. And, and you you look fresh and full of energy and ready to go as usual. Yeah, I, I am full of energy. You've got to be the day before you fly out for a few months, as I'm doing in the morning tomorrow, and you know, doing it with a toddler just to increase the degree of difficulty on that mm. particular point. So I've been trying to you know, clear off loose ends and... Collect dry cleaning and, you know, return library books for Winnie and the things that if I don't do, I'll regret upon arriving in Australia. (laughs) And I went to Steve Dodd's uh, place of work yesterday, did a presentation to his crew at uh, at Creature, who are uh, an advertising design firm in in town here. So it's been nice to do a few other bits and pieces with the cricket, not quite as big a part of our life between seasons. But yes, uh, it it takes off again on Sunday when the daily shows begin and and all the rest. And it's going to be intense and I can't wait to be sat across a table from you doing this rather than sat through a Zoom screen. Uh, it always makes it more fluent. Yes, yeah, it's a, a much much more conversational experience. But we've got a few stories to tell today. We've got a little bit of correspondence to look at as well. Maybe I'll get to some of that up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hypercost, who on the internet knows a lot of things about cricket, if you're not familiar with Hypercost, has checked up on a few things for me. As I suspected last week... The game that we talked about in which New Zealand played a World Eleven in a 10-over match, uh, it was not a formal list day game. Of course, it couldn't have been because there's a minimum overs qualification to be a formal list day game, isn't there? It has to be 20 overs aside or whatever it was, so that couldn't have been the case. Yeah, that's right. I thought the same thing when listening back, but I like the added bit of detail that it was effectively a beer match because the one-day international earlier in the day finished in like 30 overs or something like that. Yeah, or, or not a... I don't think... It wasn't a formal ODI, but the list day game list day earlier game, yeah. in the day was was a 38-over bowl-out sort of thing, and so they chucked a 10-over a aside match on the end of it, and both teams made about 180. And miraculously tied who would have thought you can listen to that story on last week's show uh, also from hypercost on my question of whether there has been an international keeper in both senses of the word whether there's been a goalkeeper and wicketkeeper mm-hmm. across the dual codes internationals uh, he says there is at least one rebecca rolls for new zealand was between the posts and behind the stumps very good across various periods of time uh, sean mcgiven has also written in to confirm your question adam which is was there ever a more expensive set of matching bowling figures in a test match than the five for 91 taken by Intercarb Alarm. There was not. It was the most expensive double. And Tavid Qureshi of the Site Screen Cricket Journal, that's a blog on Bangladeshi cricket, has also answered your other question. Uh, New Zealand in 1969 was the last time that Pakistan played in Dhaka as the home team uh, before Bangladesh became Bangladesh and stopped being East Pakistan. And I won't surprise you in a separate thread. Hypercourse was also all across those two questions. He's, um, I'm sure. He's... Yeah. he's, uh, he's uh, You've got to be quick to get in before Hypercourse. There's a really good pickup from Mark Etches on Hamish Marshall. So we told that story for uh, Michelle last week, uh, Hamish Marshall being part of the first identical twins to play Test cricket. I kind of floated, oh, what about the Bedsers? But in my, I mean, I knew that Eric Bedser hadn't played Test cricket, but I just sort of said it anyway. But yeah, they are a, a fascinating duo that we've never really dealt with on Storytime. They had this telepathic connection 
or so, mm-hmm. or so it was told. And, and they led a joint yeah. life together, like they led their entire lives in, in the same house and until they were very old men. It would make a good story time tale in and of itself, I, I suppose. Um, Eric Bedser, the off-spinner, took 833 first-class wickets at 24.95. And Alec, the seamer, took 236 test wickets at 24.9. So even on that measure, they were within five one-hundredths, five-tenths, five-one-hundredths of a decimal point on their bowling averages across the different formats. So thanks to Mark Etches for clarifying that point. And we talked about Jeff Wilson, dual code cricket and rugby union player for New Zealand. A bunch of people wrote in Daniel Heatley, Peter Langstaff, Tane Aikman, to say that the way that they remember Jeff Wilson (laughs) is in a tackle at the end of a match in 1994 at the Sydney Football Stadium when George Gregan tackles Wilson as he's about to go over for the match-winning try after a big comeback by the All Blacks and Gregan strips him of the ball as he's about to go over the line. So we've been sent that clip many times um, and, and relived. George Gregan with hair. Um, I totally yeah. forgot that George Gregan with hair ever existed, but he did. Uh, that's probably my first rugby memory. You know, like I, it was a Saturday night, that game, and obviously, uh, you know, had no real interest in, in the Northern Code, but or the Northern Code's full stop. But this was on on television back in Melbourne and, yeah, the George Regan tackle stands out. There was another question I was posing last week, Jeff, around what country could I conceivably play international cricket for? That is to say, Mm -hmm. where could I get a passport or a visa or something like that in order to be able Mm -hmm. to do it? Well, Gopal believes that that might be Portugal. And he sent me a link here saying that remote workers who make at least 2750 bucks a month can apply to Portugal's new digital nomad visa starting on October 30. So uh, if I want to be a digital nomad visa and I can make that mm-hmm. amount of money, then I suppose I can have a Portuguese passport. Well, maybe not passport, visa, but that might lead to a passport down the track. So, um, I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to do this, but it's a good starting point. There might be other countries with similar schemes that can allow me to live in London, be a citizen of their country, and ultimately represent them in, in T20 cricket. There has to be a way. And do you actually need a passport? Do you need citizenship to play for a country or could you do it on permanent residency good or point. something along those lines? That's a. am not sure that you need to have all of the the bells and whistles that you need to have been given the eucalyptus sapling citizenship (laughs) ceremony in order to be able to play for a team if you haven't played anywhere else. So the qualification period differs place to place, but basically it's, you know, that you've lived there for three years now, thereabouts, but sometimes it's different for associate and affiliate teams. I don't know, but I think there's a way. You don't necessarily need the passport, but you just need the visa and you need to, to go and live there half the year you could pop over from London to Lisbon for six mm. months of the year mm. and uh, there's the qualification pathway and you can Jack Iverson your way in at the back end of your 30s uh, with your new off break. Keen to explore it. Uh, got a message from Debashish Biswas. Now you said something there you, you mentioned associate and affiliate nations. We've been picked up on that before uh, by others mm-hmm. saying there's no affiliate nations anymore. They're all associates for the last decade or or something like that and Debashish uh-huh. wanted to pick me up on something that I've been saying a little bit recently. It's unlike uh, fans of, of cricket nerd <laughs> trivia to want to be picky about the details of things, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, 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 Deb's view is that when I describe Len Hutton as England's first professional captain, that I need to do it with a caveat that James Lillywhite, Alf Shaw and Arthur Shrewsbury were all professionals who captained England in matches. But they didn't captain England as professionals in that capacity. They weren't professionally captaining England. Oh, I think, well, I think it's more... Who were the full-time captains? I think it's more in that space. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it's. I think it's widely accepted that Len Hutton was the first full-time in the kind of professional amateur era to do it. Anyway, we went back and forth a little bit 
on the DMs on that. But I would appreciate other views if you uh, are of the opinion uh, that Len Hutton wasn't uh, England's first professional captain. Uh, let's have it out. We can do that on, on Discord or on Patreon or all the other places that we have these conversations. Chris Clark wrote in to say he was happy to hear about uh, 1960s New Zealand first-class player Roger Blunt getting mentioned in last week's story time. Chris says, a handy addition to my Stoners 11, along with Ali Brown, Cameron Green, Kemar Roach, Raymond Reefer, Matthew Potts, Ollie Stone and Arthur Grass. Very good. Maybe maybe John Embry, maybe Embers could get in there as well. Um, and there, are quite, there are quite a few reefers in the, the, the Caribbean history. Remember Floyd Reefer was leading that West Indies team when everybody was on strike maybe a dozen years ago and they were touring Bangladesh. I think it was the first time Bangladesh won a test series when that top-up West Indies side got sent over there with Floyd Reefer, um, and there's, there's been a, a long, a long legacy of Reefer names in Caribbean cricket. Yeah, in England as well. The, the the most recent member of the Reefer clan to play domestic cricket in England was for Surrey this year in a blast game, a couple of blast games. Can't remember his name now, but yeah, that's also an extension of, of the mm-hmm. Reefer crew. So yes, their tentacles are spread wide. All I can hear when you're reading that out is like the Afro Man when I got high. <laughs> it was like a yeah. like a bit of a <laughs> soundtrack to my time in the states in 2001 2002 nick dempsey do you think um has the era of the novelty song sort of passed us by because that that late 90s early 2000s thing the novelty song would would really go off on radio like it would start getting played you know dennis leary, dennis leary through yeah. to through to weird owl stuff through to i mean pretty fly for a white guy is basically a novelty song those those sorts of things they'd get traction you know and and, and it would start to work whereas now it's like the novelty song is the province of a corner of the internet but it doesn't it, it seems to me that it doesn't get the mainstream traction that yeah. it might once have got. Well, there were the guys, like, like um, uh, they were on Saturday Night Live who had like a novelty thing going off. I forget what they call Lonely it. Lonely Island. Lonely Island, exactly. You got it. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah. I, I don't know. Some of them crossed over and became like Hashpipe by Weezer. Is, is that a novelty song? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It's a fucking good song. Um, but it's, mm-hmm. it's doing a similar thing, I suppose, to Afro Man around the same time. Anyway, this is a whole different podcast probably. Uh, Nick Dempsey witnessed something very special last weekend. How's this? I want to divert your attention to a game I played in over the weekend. Murdoch Uni, Melville, versus Swan Valley in the WASTCA 7th grade. One of our bowlers, Johnny Moran, took match figures of 8 for 8, including an actual double hat-trick, two separate runs of three. Anyway, I was wondering if that had been done before in international or domestic cricket and what happened at those times. Nick also adds that Johnny had figures of none for seven off one before taking eight for one from the remainder of his overs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, two separate runs of three. In other words, have there been have there been six wickets taken in a row? I suppose that's what he's really asking there. Well, well two two separate hat-tricks is what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So not, not six in a row because that would be a quadruple hat-trick by the time we deal with sequences and mathematics and all the rest. But, but I think what he's saying, two, if you read, if you read it through... instances of three. But he does here say an actual Jeff double hat-trick, two separate runs yeah. of three. You think he's trying to say there have been... Do you but think it he, would be a run of six if it, it's not six in a row. It's two separate runs of three. Okay, okay. It's a three and then a three. Yeah, well, there have been obviously yeah. plenty of double hat tricks as recently as Curtis Camp for last year in the in the T20 World Cup, haven't there? But that's four. Yeah, so so it's two two separate hat tricks in the same innings. You've got two the two separate ones in the same test match. Oh, I um, see. Are, are you, you're in the same. Okay, now I'm with you. So two separate hat tricks in the same spell. No. Yes, in the same innings. Right. 
doesn't matter if it's the same spell. Sure, sure, right. So not Jimmy Matthews who did it in the same day at Old Trafford in 1912, but that yes, was across two but that was across separate both innings. innings, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a good question. If anyone knows, let us know. H- have you ever seen a scorecard where someone's taken two separate hat-tricks in the same innings, like Johnny Miranda? I'm going to tip... I'm going to tip there. There'd be a, a few, you know, if, if we're talking about all cricket, but if we're talking about sort of high level cricket, it's going to be pretty rare to find. It's a bit like our Raken Cornwall the thing the other day, right? So Raken yeah. Cornwall is the first to make a double hundred in a T20, but he's almost certainly not. It's just that you know, where do you draw the line? And, and the same might be for mm. this. That I wonder whether there's say a first class game where two hat tricks have been taken by the same bowler in the same innings, even different bowlers. I'd be mm. interested to know whether two hat tricks by different bowlers. That's the sort of thing I reckon Andrew Sampson could access pretty quickly on his magical database. We'll find out. He'd tell you that in 16 seconds. (laughs) Anyway, enough correspondence, enough talking about the numbers of the past. Uh, Let's talk about the numbers of the future, which are also numbers of the past. Let's do that via the medium of Nerd Pledge. It is the best game on the internet. That's my opinion. It's a reverse quiz, reverse cricket quiz, uh, where you quiz us. Here's how it works. People who support this show do so by sending in their financial contributions, whatever number they like, but it's not a round number. It's not a normal number. It's not the number you'd expect on currency. It's a specific number because the number relates to cricket in some way and our job is to figure out what it means. Sometimes with nothing more than the number itself, for instance, Julian Campbell has sent through $2.57. That's it. That's all we've got. We've got 2.57. It could mean 257, could mean 257 million. What does 257 mean when interpreted in the language of cricket, Adam Collins? Yeah, well, it means three things to me immediately. Because I know Ricky Ponting made a 257, right? Mm -hmm. We were there. I know that Wazim Akram hit a 257 that we've spoken about on the program a number of times against Zimbabwe, the mm-hmm. most sixes ever in a test innings, at least to that point it was. I'm not sure if it's been overtaken since, but he's... No, still is. Is it 14 bombs he hit out of that 257, I reckon? Yeah, 13, 13 maybe. 14. Yeah. But also now, because my brain has been completely rewired since making story time, I also mm-hmm. think of this. But when I see the number 257, Jeff, I think, well, that's a cap number of the England interwar period. It must be mm-hmm. a DAB. And what do you know? This was too good to refuse. This was perfect. There can't be many numbers left between about, say, 230-something and 280-something where we haven't uh-huh. like, already nailed the DABs. This wasn't one of them. And there'd have to be a few that are not. To, to translate, that's a dusty old bastard for those Correct. who don't know. That's, that is, and, and there's been some debate about what qualifies as a dusty old bastard. It, for me, it's very vibes-based. It's not yes. specifically about an era. It is a player who played a very small amount of international cricket and who we've never really heard of and who we think the average cricket fan would not necessarily know much or anything about. Yeah. That's, I, that's the vibes. I think this started with Father Marriott. That, that's the first really good one where mm-hmm. we, we didn't really know much about him, although I've subsequently spoken a lot about him on radio and whatnot when Scott Boland was doing his, his thing last year. But as you say, in that slipstream where they've played a bit of test cricket, and often because mm-hmm. the interwar period in English cricket was fucking loose, a lot of those cricketers fall in that window, as did Billy mm-hmm. Faramond, who played test cricket a number of times in the 1930s, but only got four caps. It's perfect, Jeff. It's perfect in so many ways. It's the sweet spot as well, Jeff, because he's a wicketkeeper. And we also know that 
Many, many, mm-hmm. many wicket keepers have gone on to be DOBs having played Test cricket in this very strange yep. era for England. So thank you, Julian, for giving us the chance to start the show with a DOB like this this week. Now, Billy was born in May 1903 in West Houghton, Lancashire. It was the same place where he died 76 years later. And that'll I'll just leave that to hang there as to why that's relevant. Okay. Now, how's this for a claim? In the 1920s into the 1930s, he was known as the second best keeper in England. Fucking everybody was known as the second best keeper in England behind Les Ames in the (laughs) 1920s and 30s in England in that that stretch. Everyone got to go as Ames' understudy at some stage. And what do you know? His Lancashire teammate, George Duckworth, was also known as the second best keeper in England at different times, oh, but... There were there were at least 17 of them. <laughs> uh, this, this is the thing about... You, when, when you say writing some retrospective in Wisden and it's 1948 or whatever it is and you're talking about something from the 30s, you can afford to be very generous. You can be very kind. True. Oh, he was, he was known as an outstanding, an outstanding operator with the gloves and unlucky not to have had a longer test career behind X. And there can be 38 eight wicket keepers who are in that category. Unlucky, unlucky to have played in the same era as Alan Knott or Jack Russell or the other Jack Russell or whatever. Yeah, and it's so subjective with wicket keepers, remembering that they were picked in this era purely on their glove work. What what they Mm -hmm. did as a batter didn't matter an awful lot. Now, the fact Mm -hmm. that Les Ames was a very, very good batter did help him stay ahead in the queue. But, I mean, George Duckworth, right? He was the number one at Lancashire and the number Mm -hmm. two at England. And our man Billy was the number two at Lancashire and occasionally the number two at England as well. Really strange situation between those three wicketkeepers at different points on various tours they went on. Oh, and also from memory, Les Ames was, was keeping another second best keeper in England out of the Kent team, wasn't he? Wasn't there the, I, I can't mm-hmm. remember who it was now, but there, there, someone that played with Ames at Kent also got test cricket through this stretch. So, you know, it, it, all, it all tallies that Faramond would have been, as you say, described in, in these ways. So he barely played through his peak years late 20s into the early 30s. He just wasn't getting oh. a game of county cricket. He was just so a second level cricketer. he's the Carlo Cudicini of, uh, <laughs> of wicket-keeping in he's that the, era. He's the spider spends a decade on the bench. Yeah. <laughs> You're like Spider Kalic when he played against Croatia in that World Cup game when they benched Mark Schwarzer and, uh, and mm-hmm. Cerner. Uh, Can I buy a vowel? Uh, he scored that goal that leapt over the top of him early on and uh, and, and Kalic was um, left desolate. Um, and got dropped immediately for the next game. Was it the Croatia game? Yeah, he, he, played. he came back after that though. He like he he did well in the the latter bit of that game. A few good right. saves. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, before Kiel uh, scored the equaliser, which was effectively the winner because Australia went through yep. on on goal difference. That was a great night at the. Uh, I was at the Royal Derby Hotel in. Uh, I suppose you'd, is it Fitzroy or Collingwood there? You'd probably call it Collingwood until very, very late, uh, until 6.30 in the morning, actually, because that's when they kicked us mm. out after Australia had qualified for the, the round of 16. And my best mate, Ben, and I uh, walked back down Brunswick Street. My then-girlfriend was working as a radio producer for Wilbur Wilde, and um, we, 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 did, we did a radio across the Wilbur Wilde after about 20 pints or whatever it was through the middle of the night. Having, well, it was less about the beer and it was more about having not had a, a wink of sleep and been so excited that we'd gone to the pub then watched the game. And Was Russell Gilbert busy that morning? <laughs> I think from memory, uh, I think from memory, Wilbur was the kind of like the, the holiday presenter. Like They had higher-profile uh-huh. people on the show who got the gig right. ordinarily but Pluck a duck did did it for the rest of the year <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's kind of a standard melbourne you know like those melbourne stand-up comics who get those kind of breakfast radio gigs and then yep. in comes wilbur with his saxophone and, and um plays a sore chin <laughs> anyway great memories of that day where are we why are we talking about spider college that's why because billy Farramond played that role uh, for lancashire and england occasionally uh, in the early and mid 1930s right so 
He gets a test tour, barely playing for his county. He gets taken as the reserve to Duckworth. So Ames doesn't go to South Africa in 30-31. Not sure why. Duckworth's did, keeping did up a mean, one. Did that mean they were aimless? Very good. They, they were, by definition, aimless. And mm. um, I was going to call him Billy Duckworth. Uh, Duckworth, George. I'm combining mm. Billy Faramond and, and Billy Duckworth. But Billy Duckworth. Never want to watch the 1984 Grand Final ever again. And because Duckworth got injured on that trip, I think he was crook. In comes mm. the, the reserve reserve, Billy Faramond, and gets two tests. So he mm. was... He was the man in, in position and, and got an opportunity. Didn't do much with it. Apparently, according to the reports, he was very tidy, but there was no sort of, you know, century on Deboer or anything like it. And then four years later in the West Indies, he did exactly the same thing, Faramon this is, as the backup to Ames and got a further test match when Ames was crook. So he picks up three test matches away from home as the understudy. And then in 1935, he gets to play one test match at home when Les Ames, for some reason, plays as a specialist batter and they let Billy keep in a match at home. Again, I have no idea why hmm. that was the case. So seven dismissals for England, all very much fine. No concerns about his wicket-keeping, but only 116 runs across those four test matches, though, a high score of 35. So that meant Ames was back in the team soon enough. But for Faramond's part, uh, he was only the second wicket-keeper ever to take seven dismissals in an innings. That was against Kent. Maybe Ames was playing uh, at Old Trafford in 1930. So it was a joint world record. I think that's now eight, isn't it? I think they've been wicket-keepers of have since had eight dismissals. I've got a feeling that that happened in the Sheffield Shield at some point in the mid-90s. Uh, Pat Rogers will know mm-hmm. the answer to that. Yeah, and clearly not m- much of a batter, Faramond. He, he made just one first-class 100, and that was for the minor counties playing against Oxford. I'm not quite sure how that came to pass. But never a, a first-class century for Lancashire, but still better than Duckworth, right? So Duckworth, who was the more accomplished England man, played mm-hmm. like 24 test matches. He's Average in first-class cricket was 14 with a high score of 75, whereas our man, average of 23 with 17 half-centuries. So, you know, he was a better batter, but it kind of reinforces this point that batting didn't matter for wicket-keepers back then. He eventually became the first-choice keeper at Lanks, but it happened in 1938, and, of course, after two seasons... World War II breaks out, and that's the end of his mm-hmm. career. He tried to make a comeback in 1945 as a 42-year-old, but he, he realised he was done. This is noteworthy. I mentioned that he was born and died both in West Houghton, Lancashire. He had plenty of offers to leave the county and play as the first wicketkeeper around the country. And he always said no because he was fiercely loyal to his original county. He was old school. Mm-hmm. Lancashire, cradle to grave. 297 dismissals for his club, for the Red Rose, and test cap 257 Billy Faramond, and now a dusty old bastard, thanks to Julian Campbell. Billy Faramond and George Duckworth. Quack, quack, quack. Uh, Lovely. Love it. Love a bit of dusty old bastard action to start us off. Uh, Next number comes in from Lakshmi. Mm -hmm. It is $3.92, and there's a clue. There is. Uh, Lakshmi says, My clue is to look at the Australian women's game, though I enjoy most of the rambling adventures into DOBs and less traverse cricket history. So feel free to take a meandering route to work this one out. Jeff. Very well. I will. I shall. 392 is what we're looking at, and we're looking at Australian women's cricket. So in terms of volume, it can't be, for instance, a cap number. Uh, It can't be a Mm -hmm. a number of matches played or wickets taken or innings batted. I I thought for a second maybe across formats someone got there, but, Mm -hmm. I mean, Alex Blackwell is the most capped Australian player, and I think 227 innings is where she finished up. I'm pretty sure that's the most that that anyone's battered for Australia. So not going to be that. 
There's no Australian women's player with 392 career runs in a particular format, and I didn't bother calculating it across formats because I think 392 runs across two or three formats would be fairly underwhelming as as a career mm-hmm. total and probably not leading to anything particularly interesting. 39.2 could, could, maybe not, but it could be a rounded batting average. And if it were, it could lead to Lindsay Reeler. And it was interesting, we're talking about the, the Dusty Old Bastard definition and the fact that it it's really about players that you've heard of and haven't heard of. And because women's cricket was so under-publicised and so little spoken about, you know, probably up to the late 90s, maybe into early 2000s, before some of the players start to be, at least a couple of the players start to be better known. You know, you through that that era, you get Belinda Clark and Karen Rolton mm. and Shelley Nitschke and so on, who are, and Catherine Fitzpatrick, who are doing great things on the field and so start to those names start to come into the consciousness whereas I'm not sure that applies even if players are doing really good things in the 1980s for instance so I feel like maybe DOB territory in the women's game could extend all the way up to the 80s um, whereas in the men's game it probably drops off a bit earlier yeah I think that's fair like Daniel and I spent about 25 minutes talking about a test match from 1985 when you were away and like yeah, there are some great names there, but we just don't have, as you say, the, the knowledge of them because there wasn't the exposure. Even the the nineteen eighty eight World Cup final at the MCG, the Hypercourse, has this wonderful catalogue of every uh, bit of vision mm. um, that, that's been collected and available online. And that was just a highlights package. You know, there was a World Cup final at the MCG, and it didn't yeah. warrant that kind of extended coverage that would just be stock standard. You know. 10, 15 years later for World Cups. And then, of course, now all, all bilateral cricket is covered in, in one form or another. But yeah, there's like, there are generations of women where we might only mm. know at best one player. So yeah, there's a lot to deal with there. And whether they're dusty old bastards in, in the way that we were discussing before with Billy, maybe not quite. But yeah, mm. we should tell more of these stories. So Lindsay Reeler doesn't, doesn't deserve that categorization based on the career that she had um, because she played quite a bit she played mm-hmm. that whole five test series in 1985 that's oh, right. still the only five test series that Australia and England have played in the women's game and she played five other test matches so 10 tests all up through the 80s uh, still holds the record for the highest partnership in women's tests for the third wicket and I know that you spoke to Daniel about Denise Annettes mm. uh, who became Denise Emerson later they shared a partnership of 309, which is the record by an absolute mile still. The next best to this day is 178. So 309, you know, will take some catching for the third wicket. Uh, the 178 was Carolyn Atkins and Charlotte Edwards, and we talked about huh. Carolyn Atkins sort of tangentially last week, I think, based on Graham Fowler making all of his students wear bandanas yes. under their helmets so that the plastic didn't touch their head and ruin their muscular strength when they were hitting the ball and Kaz Atkins always wore the bandana under the helmet. Which is why her nickname is Shaggy because uh, she wore the bandana under her helmet which stuck out uh-huh. uh, of the back. So it's very of its time calling her Shaggy, uh-huh. I suppose, for that. But, yeah, that was on the Mark Steele episode that was in the feed a couple of days ago. Yeah, you, you, you play and miss this little noise. You look at the umpire and say, it wasn't me. <laughs> um, so, so Lindsay Reeler with that 39.2 average in test cricket, uh, made one test century, had a, a decent set of numbers there, much better numbers in one day international cricket. Now, she just makes the qualification stato-wise because she had 23 innings. Her average, 57.44, second 
best of all time in women's one-dayers if you take the 20-innings minimum qualification. And the only player better is Rachel Hayhoe-Flint, who just sneaks in. She's got exactly 20 innings played um, and has a slightly higher average of 58. So Lindsay really did fill the boots against uh, Ireland and Netherlands when she came up against them, but nonetheless, you've still got to make the runs. And if you don't know much about her, she was born in Zambia, moved to Sydney as a kid, didn't take up cricket until the age of 15, uh, played against and with a local boys team, and then within a few years qualified for New South Wales, got picked for New South Wales and then for Australia. So she had this hot streak during the 1988 World Cup. Through the World Cup, eight innings, 448 runs, averaging nearly 150. The first innings in that World Cup, she makes 143 not out. And at that point, she sets what is then a record for the most 50-plus scores in consecutive innings in women's one-dayers. So at that point, she's done it six times in a row. And it's also the record for the highest individual score in women's one-day cricket at the time. So a bunch of players have gone past that highest score since with 150-plus and a couple of double centuries. But only Matali Raj has ever beaten that record for consecutive 50-plus scores. So Matali Raj ended up with a streak of seven at one point, but Lindsay Reeler is still in second place on six. Uh, had to retire at the age of 27 due to injuries, but still has that career and that high number mark in one-day cricket that would be pretty hard to catch. And after saying all of that, I don't think this is the answer because the clue said think about Australian women's cricket rather than think about a particular cricketer. So I was trying to come up with something more broadly. What what speaks about the women's game more broadly? And I thought, what if 392 is something to do with like a year and a bit? What if it's to do with a number of days because that it feels like it could be a span and I know that we're about to have the men's t20 world cup which was supposed to be two years ago but wasn't two years ago and ended up getting put off another thing that got put off was the women's 50 over world cup that was supposed to be in 2021 ended up being in 2022 the gap between the day that the final should have been played last year and the day that it was played this year was 392 days and Australia ended up winning the whole thing. Oh, that's very good. That's a nice way to get to it. I, I, I like that you acknowledge the the meandering instruction mm-hmm. here as well. When you were finishing that answer, I had a quick look at Zambia as to how they're going cricket-wise, given that was the birthplace of Lindsay Reeler. And I, I'm sad to report that the ICC terminated Zambia's membership due to continued non-compliance to amend multiple breaches of the ICC's membership criteria at the 2021 ICC AGM. I had a feeling they were in strife, and they are, mm. so... Always interesting to take a look back and, and see who, who've played for these national teams across the journey. But yes, for the time being, at least Zambia won't be playing any cricket that's sanctioned by the ICC, I'm afraid to say. But, you know, maybe the next Lindsay Reeler, if they're born in that country, will, will play for Zambia or other parts of Africa, where there is now, of course, T20 international cricket available to them. And and, and that'll continue to grow in, in the years and decades to come, I suppose. Come on, Zambia. Get your act together. Come on, I don't know what's going on over there, but pull it together. Next time we're, we're touring Zimbabwe, we'll pop up to Zambia and yes. have a stern word with some people. See what we can sort out, see what we can put in place on the ground. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. Harry Chapman, Adam, he's your next number. Yep. $3.42 in the greenbacks, and he says, I had to change my currency to US dollars due to taking a new job in the USA, which is also a clue for my number. 
Yeah, right. So I'm, I'm happy with where I got to on this, I must say, Jeff. So I, I went through all the usual nooks and valleys and so on about USA cricket and 342, 342, 342. Nothing works. Their highest score in one day cricket's 282. Never been taken by a US bowler, man or woman, those figures. It's probably not Aaron Jones's first class run so far, playing with Barbados and the USA in recent years. Then I thought, well, what about cricketers who might have been born in the USA but played elsewhere? Trevor Bailey, cap 342, very much not American born. <laughs> he was very much no. as British as British could be. But what about Tim May? Now, Tim May, of course, wasn't born in the United States, but I think these days he's American, uh, um, and I'll explain why. So he spent much of his working life in Austin, Texas, where he ran FICA, the kind of international players' union, between 2005 and 2013, and, and that's where he lives to this day. He retired in, okay. in the States and, and lives in Austin and um, watches. I think I read an, a, a feature with him last year where he um, he still watches the footy by satellite where he can. I suppose it's a lot easier these days with the apps that are available. But, yeah, lives a life of relative anonymity as far as cricket is concerned, having retired for, I think, his most recent ICC posting. He was on the World Cricket Committee. No, the ICC yeah. Cricket Committee until pretty recently. So he's still involved in the game, but he's retired from executive roles. Why is is the International Players Cricket Union based in Austin, Texas. Oh, I, I wanted that too. Could it be proximity to the Caribbean? That was the best I could come up with. Like maybe they wish to have the infrastructure that you might have in a city like Austin that may not be available in the Caribbean countries, possibly. Maybe it's just, just vibes. I, I, I was in vibes. Austin a couple of months ago. Um, there's a dueling piano bar where uh, okay. where you can go in and, and two different pianists will play off against one another and you can give them, tip them various amounts of money to play different songs for you. Maybe that plays into it somehow. Could do. A he might be of, into that kind a lot of thing. Of, a lot of good Mexican food there. Maybe that's his jam. I don't know. But he definitely was the 342nd Australian Test cricketer. So thus, why I'm permitted to talk about Tim May in America in this context. Okay. So Tim May had a, had a pretty interesting career, perhaps more interesting than I, than I appreciated. His timing was impeccable. So has a relatively standard upbringing in cricket through the South Australian team in a rough time for Aussie cricket, of course, through the mid-80s when a lot of players were elsewhere, be it in South Africa or... or um, and that glut of retirements. And he gets a chance to debut for Australia in both forms of the game in 1987. But in the one-day form, that's at the World Cup. He plays six games. His huh. first six games for Australia in, in 50-over cricket are at the World Cup they win. Now, he's not a major player in the semi or the final, but he's still got that medal. So his sixth one-day international, he became a World Cup winner. Hmm. And then... Not long after that, he kind of ends up in the wilderness, doesn't go to England in 1989, for example. Trevor Hones is the main spinner on that trip. Indeed, he doesn't get back into the test team until Adelaide 1993. And again, like, now I think about it, of course, because Peter Taylor was playing, Shane Warne was on the way through, Greg Matthews had a revival and played in the, the 1990-91 Ashes, for example. There were a number of spinners turned to in that window of time, and none of them are Tim May. But when he does get back, he nails it. We all know the story of the 42 not out at the end with Craig McDermott, the 40-run 10th wicket stand where they lose by a solitary run to the West Indies, one of the one of the most thrilling test finishes, if not the most thrilling test finish ever. I remember rushing home from school and, and May was on about 30-odd and batting with McDermott and they nearly got there and didn't quite. He faced 99 balls in that innings. And in the past, Jeff, we've also referred to the, the spell that he bowled to keep Australia's chase so low. He takes five for nine 
in 6.3 overs. It's a staggering collapse in the West Indies. They're 124 for four, and they're all out 146. I can remember, I can picture where I'm sitting in front of the radio in my childhood house in Endeavour Hills as, as May was going through the West Indies' lower half. So seven wickets for the match, 42 not out, mm. alongside Shane Warne. Again, great timing, because what's coming up later in 1993? A trip to England. Now, they don't pick him in the first test at Old Trafford, where Warne bowls the ball of the century. But they do pick him the next week at Lords, which you think about it now. When do you play two spinners at Lords? I mean, that's just not mm. a thing at all. I know that India did it in 2018 and completely botched it with Kuldeep Yadav, brought into the side on a, on a surface that was as conducive to seam bowling as any I've ever seen in England. And it's all over inside kind of two and a half days. And it's England's seam is cleaning up and, and spin isn't a factor. But aside from that, I just can't really remember when two spinners have been used at Lords. But Australia went that way in 1993. Of course, it's where they rack up. Did they get to 700? It's certainly 650 plus when batting into the third day where everyone makes 100 apart from Mark Waugh, who's out for 99. Yeah, it's 644 maybe, something 644, like that. yeah. It's, it's, it's a big one and they win by an innings. But May immediately makes an impact. He, he bowls Gadding, who's batting number three, has Robin Smith stumped. That's in the first dig. Then in the second dig, he picks up Smith, Hick, Stewart and Lewis all in one spell. So rips out the England middle order. Six wickets for the test match. There you go, you're in. So complimenting Warren, I mean, he's the perfect support act. And we all think about Warren's 93 series where he takes 34 wickets and Merv Hughes taking 31. But there's Tim May, 21 wickets at 28 across five test matches. He played his role to perfection. And on the back of that, he got a full home summer in 93, 94, a trip to South Africa and fatefully a trip to Pakistan in, in 1994 where Salim Malik um, tried to bribe him and he and mm. Warren. Mark Wall reported that to the authorities at the time. But when he came back from that trip, he had three wicketless test matches against England. So he was part of the side that won the Ashes, but he wasn't particularly effective uh, when England were around in 94-95. In so his career finishes with 75 wickets in 24 test matches, which is very handy for a finger spinner in an Australian context. And soon after retirement, he becomes the inaugural chief executive of the Australian Cricketers Association, which if you don't know, that's the Players' Union in Australia. And he's the one that strikes that landmark agreement in 1997 when the ACA... And then the Australian Cricket Board, you know, they're on the they're on the cusp of uh, of striking the players through all of that. And Tim May was uh, right in the heart of the negotiations and got them that massive pay increase that was the the catalyst for a series of other pay increases through the next ten or fifteen years, and where the whole world changed for Australian players. That was the start of the revenue share yeah, model. That's right. The players wanted a percentage of the income rather than being paid flat rates for playing. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. And then from there, he was seen to have done such a good job with the ACA that, that I mentioned before, Fika, um, based in the USA, picked him up in 2005 and he served in that role in Austin, Texas until 2013. And mentioned before, he did some work with the ICC for a number of years after that. But yes, very happy now. He's an American football nut living in uh, Austin, happily retired in Texas where he lives to this day. But back then, he was cat 342, the Australian, now American, TBA mate. I like it. It's uh, tangential in a way, but it also seems to work in a way. You know, maybe, maybe, just maybe, our nerd pledger, Harry Chapman, is hanging out with Tim May in a dueling piano bar in Austin, <laughs> Texas right now. And that is where the number comes from. Hope uh, so. The off spinner that can only be described as handy, useful or wily. These are the only adjectives <laughs> that you can use for off spinners. Mark Sherry. With an X, that is. I'm not, not a James Sherry, but a Mark Sherry. Maybe it's a Brazilian-style pronunciation. I don't know. There are a lot of sexy things you can do with an X. Like Andrew Dilberson, who we haven't heard from in a yeah. while. 
He's probably yeah, in the Jill queue. Bertal. Where is Jill Bertal? <laughs> so Mark Sherry, uh, maybe maybe I'm going a Spanish vibe for this, has sent through $3.60 and a clue. Yep, here it is. He didn't play first-class cricket from what I could find, but the story of his long cricketing life deserves to be told anyhow. He was very well known around North London particularly and London in general for his involvement in the game. Seemed to play fairly regularly at Lords, the Oval and with or against the greats of the late 19th century, just not in a match with first-class status. He got a deserved obituary and wisdom when he died in 1906. The 360, and it's pounds, I should stay here, so three three pounds 60 pence itself relates to figures from an odd format featuring some greats mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay well i should say at the outset i don't think i've solved this but i found so many interesting things along the way that i don't really care that i haven't solved this this is tricky trying to figure this out because uh, so here's the wording from mark he got a deserved obituary in wisdom when he died in 1908 does that mean he died in 1908 or does that mean he was in wisdom in 1908 which means mm. he died in 1907 mm. could be either does that mean that the only way to try to solve this was to read every obituary in wisdom in 1907 and 1908 yes Does that mean that that's what I did? Yes, that is what I did. (laughs) And I still haven't figured it out because trying to find someone who's got an obituary in wisdom who never played a first-class match is fairly difficult because either they played for a county at some point or they get one of those perfunctory sort of one-and-a-half line sort of jobbies if they happen to be related to someone rich or whatever it is and it's like, this guy was a reasonable player at Eton and never did anything else. The, The kind of obituary that you or I might get in wisdom one day like the one line you know yeah they were involved in cricket they worked in cricket but they don't really matter because they didn't play yeah exactly um so if you if you didn't have that first class thing you're unlikely to get an obituary with any depth to it so unless i've missed it um that was the the obstacle that i ran up against also i was looking for someone who died in 1907-08 but who was young enough to still be playing in the late 19th century because that's the the designation we were given and who had a strong London connection. I didn't find that, but I did find this about the Reverend Robert Lang, who was uh, described as a... uh, He bowled in the era of the hand below the shoulder, you know, just before they changed the laws to allow you to raise the level of the hand. And this is a description. I have to read you a a, a few lines from Wisdom because Mm -hmm. this is is so great. This This is the terror of pace of the mid-1800s. His round-armed bowling at the commencement of his cricketing career was slow, but afterwards the pace was tremendous, being one of the fastest bowlers that has ever appeared and with a break back from the off. If he had only been a little straighter, he would have been excelled by none. Had not Cambridge possessed an excellent long stop in Mr Herbert Marshall, his bowling would have been very expensive to the side owing to the number of buys which would have resulted... (laughs) Remember in those days, the grounds were not so perfect as they are now, and Bob was a little erratic at times, but Marshall hardly ever let a bye, and his return was wonderfully pretty, a sort of underhand jerk back to the bowler, the wicketkeeper standing at short slip 
as nobody could take Bob Lang, half of his balls never leaving the ground at all. So basically a guy who under who like shoots it through at a crazy pace yeah. to the point where they can't actually have a wicketkeeper for him because there's no point. They just have a long stop standing at the boundary to stop the ball reaching the rope and the wicketkeeper stands at slip just in case something bounces off a glove, presumably. <laughs> and that was the standard of like the supposedly the fastest round-arm bowler going around in the... 1850s when the Reverend Bob Lang was doing his thing. Right, right. So kind of like trying to grub it, like trying to throw pebbles across a, a lake sort of style approach yeah. with the sidearm type thing. When you were away, Jeff, we spoke about Alfred Minns and uh, him being one of the original sidearm exponents and going through how because of him we actually got leg pads. I'm not sure if you listened to that on your radio. No, no, I, was, I, was, I did that show. With, you did that show. It was oh, you oh, and I, yeah. Oh, was that you and I? Sorry, I thought that was Daniel and me. My apologies. But yes, the... Um, Either that or I listened to it. No, I, feel like, no, I feel like I did it with Daniel because I feel like we had a okay. drink before we did that one so probably to the trained ear you might have been able to detect that either way i feel a bit more informed about the round arm era but i've never heard of anyone trying to like yeah skid it along the floor it might have been quite short the rev as well that could that could have mm. contributed to this like i'm thinking uh you know because they're all very little men weren't they they're all very yeah. little they were like you know they make lasith malinga look like a giant Right. And I love the way that they talk him up. They go, oh, he was the fastest going around. He was a tremendous bowler. He didn't know where the fuck he was putting it. He was just <laughs> he was just wanging it all over the place. He would have cost them hundreds of buys if they didn't have a bloke on the fence to stop the ball getting there. <laughs> but when he got it straight, it was quite effective. Yeah, I'll bet it was because no one knew what was happening. So the reason I looked at the Reverend Robert Lang was because he didn't play county cricket. Right. But he did play some first-class matches for Harrow School, I believe it was, and he played in the Gents V Players. So the, he did have a first-class record, even though he didn't have a county record. And he was he was the only player I, I could find with an extensive obituary who wasn't a county player in those couple of years. Um, but he played too early. He played in the mid-century, not in the later part mm. of the century. The other thing that I particularly enjoyed from reading those obituaries, Adam, is how backhandedly dismissive and shit-canning someone can be when writing an obituary about players because they're not just great players. They're, they're you know, they're some of the more ordinary who, who have enough social cachet that they get their name in there. But I'm just going to read you a few choice lines from some okay. obituaries from these couple of years. Thomas William Gunn was a member of ground staff at the Oval and played for Surrey. He was a very useful club cricketer but did practically nothing for the county. <laughs> The Reverend Edward Morris Reynolds was a member of the Cambridge Eleven in 1853 and 1854, in each of which years Oxford won by an innings. <laughs> <laughs> Mr Robert Webber Munro appeared for Oxford against Cambridge in 1860. He did little, however, in the most important matches and did not make a name for himself as a player. <laughs> These poor bastards, they've been fucking skewered. <laughs> exactly. They've just died yeah. and they're getting done again. Mr Wilfred Selkirk Butterworth appeared for Lancashire on a few occasions. Scores and biographies described him as an average batsman and field. <laughs> Thank you. And then uh, this one, which is not a skewering, but I just enjoyed the language. Uh, Mr Charles Raymond Alexander Siegel of the Dulwich College 11 of 1904 and 5, was drowned with his fiancée oh at Staines on September 13th, Bye. which just makes it sound like someone had it done, you know. I, well, I'm sorry, we're going to have to pop them in the river, you know. Uh, like, they showed up that day and, well, um, these, unfortunately, this is what needs to happen. You add them to the list of uh, 
of, uh, of curious Dulwich College products. They've come up a bit, haven't we, due to the Daniel connection? Um, I wonder whether he knows that story. He probably knows it in great depth. That's a cracking answer. Have you found any connections to 360 through that for Mark? None whatsoever, Mark. I have no <laughs> fucking idea what your number means, but I know That's that okay. you will send me a message because this is how Nerd Pledge works. When we don't have an answer for your question, you get in the DMs or you get on the chat page on on Discord and you send us a message and we come back and look at it again. And if you want to send us a nerd pledge and be part of the show, very easy, patron.com slash the final word. And in doing so, you can help us keep making the show. Adam, one more number for you before we're finished with the new digits. Anna Forsyth, friend of the show, $3.90, £3.90 indeed, 3.90. She says, uh, this is really two numbers separated by decimal point, three and nine. The numbers are a celebration. They probably won't be added to, but the person they belong to thought they would never exist in the first place, even if I think they are richly deserved. This has got to be about Middlesex somehow. It's an Anna Forsyth thing, right? What, yeah. This is your this is your Bailiwick. You know, you know Middlesex stuff. It, what do you it, it is, and I do, yeah. So, uh, yeah, North London's finest, Anna Forsyth. Um, she'd be enjoying watching Arsenal go about at the moment. It has to be Middlesex. I thought Finney, but then I thought, oh, nah. Like, she's done, like, multiple Finney stories I think will broaden horizons. Then mm-hmm. I thought, well, who else are Anna's faves? And then they're never to be added to again. Oh, I wonder they might this fight with John Simpson. Aha, three one-day internationals for nine dismissals, thus the decimal point. And, of course, uh... John Simpson had that opportunity to play for England last year. Before talking about that, just a quick word for Simpson in 2022. He finished with 1,039 runs to lead Middlesex to Division 1, batting at 6 and 7, in an absolutely crucial year as a wicketkeeper. I mean, I know Toby Rowan-Jones takes 67 wickets and does a lot of the heavy lifting with the ball. But, you know, if you lead your team and make more than 1,000 runs in a year you're promoted at an average of 65 – Fair yeah. fucks. That is a hell of a season for Simpson, uh, you know, the year after he was able to represent England. Three yeah. centuries and six other scores above 50. Should have been 500s. He made 92 twice in the last two weeks of the year against uh, Worcestershire and Leicestershire. So could have easily been five tons and, and four scores yeah. above 50 with an average in the mid-60s. And, yeah, made two centuries in the middle of the year, one against Sussex, one against Durham. And I think... There was 100 against Glamorgan early in the campaign. So when Anna says he probably won't add to it, that's likely true. He's 34, but don't count him out. Like Put it this way. If England have a similar run with wicketkeepers as they did last year, he'll get a test match. (laughs) I mean, he should have got one then in 2021. He was robbed really by young James Bracey at Gloucestershire. And that's no criticism of Bracey, but... Had they their time again, they would have gone for the more accomplished wicketkeeper in Simpson and given him that opportunity rather than the kid in Bracey who you know, clearly wasn't quite ready to have the gloves at the top level. Well, I think it's clear to say that John Simpson is the second best wicketkeeper in England. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, I mean, many people, in, well, Mike Selby especially, has always litigated the case that uh-huh. Simpson is the best gloveman in England, pure gloveman, right? So had he been born, you know... In almost any other generation other than the one that he's in, he would have played a lot of test cricket, I suppose, on that basis if mm. that were to be the consensus. He was just unlucky. Unlucky to be to be born in the era, to play in the era of Johnny Bairstow, Joss Butler, <laughs> Ben Folks, James Bracey and everybody else. Exactly, especially the first few who've been, you know, well, in the case of Bairstow and Butler, two of the greatest, if not the two greatest English white ball players ever. So there's a natural desire to want them in the test team. And folks who 
along with Simpson, would be talked of as, as the best keeper in the country. You can make your own mind up on that. So Anna's story relates to the second COVID summer of 2021, when it was all going off the rails. This was mid-pingdemic, complete chaos across the country where you only needed to be like in the same postcode as somebody who had COVID, and the app would detect that and you'd be wiped out. There was this ridiculous yeah. situation where all of the press box, well, many people in the press box missed the second test of the England-New Zealand series because they were presumably sitting above someone in the Compton or Edrich stand who tested positive. So even though they were in the bubble in the Lord's Media Centre, the app didn't care. All it detected was they were within, I don't know, Oh, 30 so wait, metres so or something was, like that. Was the app two-dimensional? Did it not take into account elevation? Like yeah, if someone's I, I, on I think the that's ground right. floor of an 80-storey building and you're in the penthouse, then you're still... Well, I think it had to do with how, many, how close you had been to the person, right? But no one in the press box tested positive for COVID because they were testing on the way in every day. So it had to be someone external to that. Anyway, a bunch of them got wiped out. Their phones pinged at the same time. This is the context. Like I got wiped out of 10 days work. I missed a county game that Middlesex were playing on the same basis, like someone who was near me and I had the app on. All it created was a culture of people deleting the app, by the way. You know, naturally, if you think that's going to take you out of work, you'll you'll stop participating in, in that way. And many people did. Anyway, so that contributed to the entire England team being wiped out, then a second England team being wiped out because they had a quite extended squad being um, pandemic times. And they had to pick a third 11, effectively a third 11, to play against Pakistan in three one-day internationals. And and so they did under the captaincy of Ben Stokes, who hadn't been playing in the one-day team to that point when he was recovering from his finger injury. And to think that they won 3-0 is one of the great stories of COVID times, I reckon, Jeff. Like, you know, a full-strength Pakistan team, and playing against a side, yeah, they may not have been the third 11, but guys, many of whom wouldn't have been in the first two sides picked, which included John Simpson, gets his opportunity, included Saqib Mahmood, his first one-day international, bowled beautifully, Bryden Cass, who got a contract this week as a fast bowler. They have these fast bowler contracts on the England books these days, and Cass took a fifer um, in that series and made a bit of a name for himself. Matt Parkinson was the number one spinner at last, and yeah, he was bowling with Simpson as his wicketkeeper. And of those nine catches that um, that Simpson took, the, the most memorable one was down the leg side off Parkinson, a brilliant piece of wicketkeeping at his home ground at Lords. And yes, it was um, a job well done. The best gloveman in the country, if that was the case, he he, he helped people advance it yet further in his three one day internationals, four nine catches, one day cap, two sixty three. That must be who Anna Forsyth is talking about with her pledge of 390. Very good uh, and slightly oblique number. I'm impressed that you were able to figure that out straightforwardly. So that takes us to the end of the new numbers. We've got a couple of revisits to look at, uh, some confirmations. And then that's us for the week. Uh, Ian Colvin, the first of the revisits, 309, three pounds, nine pence was the number. I ended up talking about Patrick Patterson with Barat. Uh, why was that? Oh, I think it was to do with his bowling average and if we rounded it, but also it was an excuse to talk about Patrick Patterson with Barat, <laughs> given that he's got such a, a strong relationship with Patrick Patterson these days. Ian Colvin uh, enjoyed hearing about it. Not quite the right answer. Yeah, and I enjoyed the fact that you actually got it right the first time and skipped over it. So Ian says, great to hear my number on Storytime 107. It was very poignant to hear about the great Balfour, Patrick Patterson. As a Lancashire fan in the 1980s, he was a real hero. That wasn't my number, though. Jeff had it right with another West Indian legend in Lance Gibbs. By the way, I'm not Holly Colvin's dad, which I think you speculated, uh, you and Brat speculated maybe. I always do. Every time Ian comes up. I think I just say that I, I liked it. 
imagine he's Holly <laughs> Colvin's dad. But I've always liked to think there was some distant family connection. Holly clearly got all of the talent. In one of those moments of synchronicity that Storytime seems to generate, my brother, Steve, played against Andy Gorham in a Scottish club game, Kirk Bray versus Penny Cook. It was post his football career and he was keeping wicket very tidily in those days. Now, Andy Gorham, I'll jump forward a wee bit here, Jeff, to the confirmations. This was uh-huh. um, Edward Edgecombe last week, his 320, and Andy Gorham's highest score for Scotland was 32 when he wasn't playing football magnificently for Rangers and, and the national team where he's one of the all-time greats. Ed said... You were, of course, spot on with Andy Gorham for the revisit. I find it rather lovely that he had to be told to stop by Walter Smith. That was being told to stop playing cricket in order to keep playing for Mm -hmm. Rangers. A counterpoint to the stories of what could have been for Bairstow or Phil Neville had they played their second sports. (laughs) And that's why we were talking about dual wicketkeepers and goalkeepers internationally, which is why we started the show talking about Rebecca Rolls. Right, so the 309 was – I basically said, well – the, the, the 309 that jumps out is Lance Gibbs holding the world record for a time yep. with 309 test wickets and then went on to talk about other things. Uh, and it was Lance Gibbs after all. It's interesting, I think, the observation that you can make that that's a West Indies world record being held by a spinner and the record is attained just as the era shifts. He takes the record in 1976, early 1976, just as we're about to tip into the West Indies fast bowling era where spin becomes irrelevant. So Lance Gibbs is 41 years old by that stage. It comes in his last ever test match. So he's level with Fred Truman on 307 wickets going into the final test of a six-match series against Australia where the Windies are getting pasted. They end up losing 5-1. And Lance Gibbs, is he takes five for in the first test in Brisbane um, and starts well, but doesn't take a lot. After that, you know, a couple here, three there, a couple of wicketless innings. And it's not quite sure whether he's actually going to get there, whether he'll he'll be able to reach the Fred Truman landmark. So he levels it up after five tests and then he takes two wickets in his final test match and goes from 307 to 309. And that's it for him. But it's interesting that there's that period where the West Indies hold the big records Garfield Sobers with 365, the highest test score, and Lance Gibbs with 309 for the most wickets. And and the spin, it doesn't disappear immediately after he's finished up. So they go home, the West Indies, and play India in a series. And they keep picking spinners. They pick a bunch of different spinners through that series. Uh, David Holford, who was a leg spinner. They pick Rafik Jumadin. They pick Imtiaz Ali. They pick Albert Padmore across the first three tests. There's, there's always two spinners playing across those first three test matches. And it's only in the fourth and final test of that series that they say, bugger it. Our spinners aren't doing much of a job. And they go in with Michael Holding, Van Bernholder, Bernard Julian and Wayne Daniel for the match that we talked about on last week's show mm-hmm. when they have India five out, all out after injuring everybody in the first <laughs> innings um, and nobody wants to bat against the fast bowling in the second innings and that's where the Windy's fast bowling sort of structure comes into place. So we've got ourselves some nerd pledges linking up some uh, some different bits and pieces being stitched together and, and that's... 
there's two pieces of one era that are very close together where an era changes to another. Yeah, and when we spoke about it last week, the 576, so the, it was to do with five out, all out for 76. Vivek Arcot. It was, nine, nine, it was 97 for five and that oh, was sorry. all out. Because 97, uh, yeah, I thought it was 76. Five 97 didn't bat. Right. This case, well, Vivek Arcot dropped us a note during the week with something to ponder. He said, a thought struck me, perhaps due to ignorance. Why are the West Indies fast bowlers of the 70s and 80s so celebrated for aiming at the head while Jardine and Larwood was shamed and ridiculed for body line. Is this white guilt overcompensating for racism or is there more to it? And I kind of wrote back to Vivek and I, I don't share that view. Like I, I don't think that the reason that we no. celebrate the Windies and, and don't laud Jardine and Larwood, I think it's because the laws of the game changed after body line and it was a very different thing. I know that you can set up the leg side trap now with two behind square. It is possible to, to construct the trap, but you need to kind of appreciate, mm. I think, that there was only one plan with body line and thus they were able to have a ring of fielders and there was no protective mm. equipment. And I know that's a, a bit of mitigation here too is that there were maybe not helmets for the entirety of the Windy's dominance, but for much of it. And certainly the protective equipment was better than what they had in 32-33. So yeah, I don't think it's sort of like a reverse racism thing. I think that, you know, that doesn't quite tally. It's more to do with the way the game had changed. And look, there was an element of fear about what the Windies were doing, which was comparable to what was happening 50, 60 years earlier in Bodyline. It's more just that it wasn't as, I guess, it wasn't as strikingly new and unusual and mm. deliberate. And I'm not placing a value judgment on this. It just was deliberate. Whereas these Windies players were bowling short, sure, but they were also getting batters out other ways. Well, so there's a couple of things I'd say to that. One is that the introduction or the common usage of helmets is as a response to the way the West Indies bowl. True. I mean, yep. it's not it's not that they happen to be bowling in an era when they're helmets. They create the era of helmets because of the way they're bowling. But I, I fundamentally disagree with the premise that the West Indies bowlers are celebrated. Maybe that's the case now. It wasn't at the time. There was a huge amount of stigma, criticism, unhappiness at the time there was particularly coming from England particularly coming from the white cricketing countries that the way the West Indies played was unsporting and unfair and that it was monotonous and dull and it was slow and it was turning the game into a game of violence and attrition and, and not a game of skill there was a vast amount of criticism at the time about the way that they played and the way that they bowled there was there was broad discontent the laws of the game were changed as a result the number of bounces Mm. that you're allowed to bowl per over was brought in true, as true. a change uh, to deliberately to nullify the way that those West Indies teams were going about it. So I, I think there was a lot of antipathy towards them as a black team playing that way rather than that opposite sort of idea that there was an excuse made for them as a black team. Yeah. Um, the celebration of that West Indies era is more broadly the case now because with hindsight they're seen as an interesting and fun and cool sort of team to play but there was a lot of unhappiness about that being a very unfun way to play cricket at the time um, with the the aggression and the short pitch bowling of that era yeah and and they took their cues a little bit from what happened to them when they came to australia in, in 75 76 right so when it's still lillian thompson who were able to to ramp it up and of course what what happened to england in 74 75 it's much the same with thompson bowling maybe as quickly as anyone's ever bowled in mm. international cricket of course it's hard to measure that retrospectively but you know you watch the footage of thompson I was watching some footage today of an Australia A game, an Australian 11 game from the mid-90s where it's Paul Rifle 
and Merv Hughes bowling. And they would have been bowling in that game on that day, you know, probably in the low 70s miles an hour, right? It was, it was pretty mm. friendly bowling. You watch tape back, and I'm not saying they couldn't bowl quicker than that, just simply on that day, right? And that's in our lifetimes watching cricket. You go back to 74, 75, that is genuinely scary watching Thompson bowl. Mm. And, of course, no helmets or, or anything like that. And even with helmets, right, like you jump forward to – to 78, 79, I, I mentioned to you that on holiday, I read the Alan Lee book about that really interesting summer where World Series was happening in sort of some parts of the country and England mm. were touring Australia playing an Ashes series across six matches in other parts of the country. And the England players kept getting like what they called it sculled, kept getting hit in the helmet, not just by Rodney Hogg, but including by Rodney Hogg. And that was also part of the, the culture shift. Like it wasn't just the Windies bowling short and aggressively at people's heads. It was, a, mm. it was in, increasingly a part of the game through the, the earlier mid-70s to the point where they had the technology and the rest is history. Now you wouldn't dream of yep. facing that sort of bowling without that kind of protective equipment. And if you're facing that West Indies attack with two players behind square, you've got a better chance of finding a way to score if you're exactly. able to counter-attack exactly. than if you're playing body line with seven or eight players behind square and the ball being directed at you. There's nowhere out, was there? Yeah. Yeah, I I think they're they're different things um, and in terms of the the quality of the gloves and and pads and all of that sort of thing as well. So different stuff, um, but interesting discussion point. Uh, Rosie Piper, revisit for her, $10.40 was the number. You looked at someone taking 10 for 40, I believe. I think we did 10 for nuns, didn't we? I reckon it was you or or, or, I don't think it was me. It might have been Daniel because we saw 10 for zero. zero. So we went, oh, 10 for none. And we tried to find, okay. we, we found some examples, uh, one of us. It was a while ago, I think, but okay. we weren't right. Okay. Well, she says uh, she hadn't considered the possibility that someone could take 10 for none. So that was a good listen. Um, I'm quite fascinated, says Rosie, by the cricketers that pop up for one summer and then are never seen again. If I were a richer woman, the decimal place would be moved one spot to the right and there you would have the top score of one such player <laughs> in a certain format. Top score of 104, that means. What do you got? Yeah, so um, the Discord channel, Maisie, who's very good on these matters, and by the way, he's been helping you with the Rob O'Neill epic that we're not solving this week because uh, I suspect you've got a fair bit of work to do on that before we arrive at an mm-hmm. answer, but uh, Maisie's very, very good on solving numbers as they come up, and yes, he got the rebound for Rosie, and I've filled in the gaps a bit. So, And it is an unusual story. So much so that I don't know an awful lot about it because – It pertains to the year that I was living in the UK and when I was probably as detached from cricket as at any time in my life, so around 2009 to about 2012-ish, 13-ish, I'm I'm playing a lot more but I'm not really following it as closely because my Mm -hmm. life was so wrapped up in in the political hustle and bustle. Anyway, but yeah, this player in question, we all come to in a moment, did his finest work in the summer of 11-12. It's Peter Forrest. So if you look back at it, he he did really well for New South Wales in 07-08 to become a full-time player there. Within a couple of years, he had a shield season averaging 60-something, got him into the Australia A team in in 2010. But a lack of opportunities there, because obviously it was so competitive for New South Wales at the time. A tragedy in his personal life with his father dying. It it all came together and he decided to go north and move to Queensland. And that's where it all takes off for him. So the summer of 11-12 is the one that Rosie's referring to there. He starts off making three shield tons, 
has a fabulous BBL campaign. And in the January of that year, 2012, at age 27, he's drafted into the one-day squad. And I reckon that's the same series that Dan Christian took his hat trick. Yeah, It's that mm-hmm. part of the World Cup cycle, the four-year cycle, where they, they like to try a few things, right? Because the World Cup was in 2011. This was the next home summer after that. And this was the Pat Howard days too, the early Pat Howard days. And he was always big on this. And it makes sense that in year one, you just try a bunch of combinations, a bunch of players, and you see what sticks. And then you kind of try and develop right. that group through to the major tournament when it comes around to well, the next one. Of I, course remember, was- I remember watching him, watching Peter Forrest, play on his debut you know I, I was paying a lot of attention that year and, and watched all of his one day innings and he looked good he looked sort of technically correct I remember him playing some really nice on drives and those kind of shots where you think well you know and, and doing like a lot of just good simple strike rotation driving the ball down to long on and that right. kind of thing he looked like a, a player who knew his game and and there was this feeling of you know how has this happened where has this guy come from where suddenly yeah. he's he's in the Australian team and just peeling off runs yeah it, it's a really strange part because you know like when you see guys who are drafted in from hitting three tons in a hurry they tend to be like 21 22 don't they they don't tend mm. to be 27 like he's just a little bit older like the body of work is kind of there but 12 months before that he's playing second team cricket for New South Wales so you could call it a meteoric rise capturing what he did in the shield and in the big bash for the heat he was actually captaining that BBL team that couldn't have hurt and then he just takes off as an international cricketer straight away 66 on debut batting at number four in a one dayer against India behind Warner, Ponsing and Clark. So, you know, three very useful cricketers to be walking in after. And that's the stage where David Warner sucks in 50-over cricket as well. That's when he's 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 pretty young. He's done well in the T20 team. They throw right. him in the 50-over team and hope that it works out and he's he, he hasn't figured out how to play the, the longer formats yet. Right, right. Then, then in his third game, Forrest makes 52, also against India. That time it was at the Gabba. Then in his fourth game down at Hobart against Sri Lanka, back in the, the final days of the Tri-Series, he hits 100. 104, which is surely Rosie's number, coming in at number three. It's an old-fashioned innings. He faces 138 balls, gets Australia to 280 for six, albeit in a losing effort because Sri Lanka chase it down. But, you know, there is clearly something there. At that juncture, he has more runs than any Australian has ever had after four one-day innings for a couple of half centuries plus the ton. It's it's a mighty effort. It's a great way to start his international career. But then he really does fall off a cliff. In his next 10 innings which proved to be his last 10 for Australia, through to July 2012 in England. He is in single digits six times and only makes it to 50 once. And after that quite strange one-day tour of England in, in 2012, they dispense with him and and that's that. So he played 15 one-dayers for 368 runs at 26. But yeah, clearly had the game to make it work. It just wasn't to be. And they discarded him. As a domestic cricketer, he did bounce back. He had a fantastic 13-14 where he made 823 runs at 69 with 300. So there was a chance for him to have a sort of a second coming as a mm. – he would have been, I guess, thirty, nearly 30 by then. But they were his last domestic centuries. He he was done mm. by 16-17. He had a few poor years as a first-class cricketer, again, starved for opportunities. And funnily enough, that 104 wasn't only his sole – international century it was his only list day century too so in a way he might have been picked in the wrong format like he never had big 50 over numbers it was at first class level where he was able to stitch together a couple of big years in the shield averaging in the mid to high 60s but i suppose it's one of those where you know he can't be sad that it's over he can only be happy that it happened and remains a, yeah an enigma of sorts peter forrest and maybe rather than the low scores being uh, not indicative of his ability maybe the higher scores were disproportionate in that maybe that was 
the best that he could possibly do, and, and he came in and just happened to have an anomalous good patch at the start. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. I, I just I was quite drawn to that that shield run, right? You know, if you had two seasons where you're averaging mid to high sixties in the shield with six hundreds across those those two yeah. years, I mean, you are probably good enough to play Test cricket. But I suppose because mm. he'd fallen away as a one day player. They went on to the next, I said before, it was like a bit of a merry-go-round when they're trying to find the right combination. And it was a youth thing. It was, it was Pat Howard plus Greg Chappell. So yeah, know, if, you yeah. were, if you were 14 and looked good in the nets, then you'd probably be in. But well, well, funnily uh, enough, it was probably Steve Smith, right? He's probably the next cab off the rank. And that works mm. out okay. Anyway, so it is. That's the end of the revisits for now. There's quite a few already in the queue again for, for next week and, and, and the weeks to come because we had that big revisit special last week where we didn't get all of them right. So the cycle continues, but we'll get to those as soon as we can when we are in Australia. Um, we do have a slew of confirmations though, Jeff, so we'll bounce through a few of those. Uh, I'll start 206. WG Rumble Pants. We said, I said, Arthur Carr's highest score for knots, uh, one of the architects of Bodyline. WG says he listened to it when walking the dog. It was definitely a fun episode. He loved the revisit special. He'll have to think carefully about his next pledge and he thanks us for all the fun. Thank you, WG. Harry Wojciechowski's £6.77. He says, uh, just to say, you were spot on with Devon Malcolm taking 6 for 77 with his cartwheeling stumps. Top work as always. Uh, James Rodder, uh, 320, 320 first-class wickets for the Chad. Chad Sayers, he liked that. We were correct. He has a hell of a story in being deemed too slow to play first-class cricket and then too slow to play international cricket and proving the doubt is wrong. I always thought it was a shame he never got a crack in England. And I thought about that. Like, it's a real shame that no county went to Chad and said, you know, sign a three-year deal and, and just... We'll pop you on at one end and play 14 games and you'll dominate because yeah. you know, you'd, you'd imagine in, in English conditions over a sustained period of time that that would have been his best cricket, but unfortunately not to be. But you know what the problem was? It's that Australia kept him in the squad for about seven years and never picked him because he he hadn't played an Australian game. Like if you've, you've got to play one international game for Australia to fall into that eligibility yes. category. And, and, and it's funny, isn't it? then go and play county cricket. Yeah, it's funny because the timings has hurt him there because they changed that a couple of years ago to get more players than 100. So now the bar's lowered, which is why Matt Renshaw was able to come yeah. back and play county cricket this year. It's like, in many ways, timing hurt Chad Sayers. Yeah, so if they picked him just for one game in, say, 2014 or something like that, yeah, then he'd he, been laughing. he could have... He could have hoovered up wickets for a few years in the county championship and guaranteed that he would have been picked when Australia went to play test cricket. Uh, Jeremy LaRue says that his $9.95 was indeed the match figures for Frank Tyson, the typhoon, at the MCG in 1954. And he was trying to steer us to that because Frank Tyson it seems, taught at Jeremy's school. Jeremy says, I went to Ivanhoe Grammar, trying to work out the dates. I think I was in year 10, which would have made it 1990. So somewhere later in, in the professional life of Typhoon Tyson, he was knocking around Ivanhoe Grammar. Fair play. There was no way we were getting that because I just I tried so many different search combinations to find another school that Tyson may have taught at, but there was just nothing. So yeah, Ivanhoe Grammar, nicely done. I should have. Uh, imagine if I'd tapped in. So my former cricket captain, James Chappell, um, mm-hmm. who's another Chappelle, who, who captained the Dan O'Connell side, teaches at Ivanhoe Grammar. I reckon ah. he would know. If I, if, I, if I quizzed him about did any former test cricketers teach at your school, I'm pretty confident he would know that the typhoon was knocking around there. I feel the same way. One of my best mates, Sam Brannigan, who listens to the show, mustn't have been listening to Storytime because he, Ivanhoe Grammar, 
alumnus uh, would have surely known that, that Frank Tyson played and he would have told me it wasn't to be. Hi, Sam, if you are listening this week. Uh, 101, Michelle Garland. We touched on this earlier. Hamish Marshall's uh, 101, which was his highest score in one day cricket. Michelle confirmed this and sent through a video of Hamish Marshall and Jeff Wilson playing in that 2005 uh, T20 together that we referred to last week when they were both featured on the show. Alex Brown, a couple of people jumped in on this. Alex Brown says that Hamish Marshall had an Irish passport, so had to give up playing for New Zealand in order to be not considered an overseas player at Gloucestershire. That makes a lot of sense. Remember, at the time, loads of people in New Zealand were being quite annoyed about it. And Brian Stratford adds to that by saying that he remembers Marshall being in an Irish squad around the same time as Ed Joyce returned, but he couldn't remember if Hamish had played for Ireland. And that makes sense as well, because famously, Ed Joyce recruited Tim Murta out of the Bath at Lords when he said, Murta, that sounds like an Irish name. Do you have like an Irish? And he goes, yeah, I've got an Irish granny. And that's how he um, got him to play uh, when when Joyce returned to Ireland following his his England stint. And then Tom Tallyman uh, on Discord brought to our attention that he did play for Ireland in one miscellaneous match. Ireland playing an Indian tour in 2011. They played against Pune and he made 72 in a big win for the Irish tourists to never play again. So they've picked Hamish huh. Marshall. They've flown him out to India. He's been a match winner in a domestic game. I mean, it seems odd to me that he was never in, in the first. There must be more to this. Why did Hamish Marshall, despite being eligible, having the passport, they weren't a full member nation, so it wouldn't have jeopardised his status as a, a, a player in the county championship, as a local player. How did uh-huh. it come to pass that he never actually played? There's got to be more to this. Well, and so he played against the Pune Club. Yeah. At the Pune Club ground against a Pune Club team featuring 13 players on this scorecard while the Irish were fielding 12. So, well, I'm sure that was very worthwhile. Well, I'm I'm assuming what it would have been, I mean, without looking at it in great depth, I'm I'm assuming it was an Irish tour where they were playing domestic teams in India. It might have been around the 2011 World Cup. Whatever it was. It just seems like mm. jarring that when Ireland were clearly seeking out the well, best talent available to them, that they didn't kind of see that, well, we've got this guy who averaged 39 at test level, averaged about the sure. same in one-day cricket. He's making tonnes for fun over at Bristol. How didn't, like, across... There would have been many opportunities, I assume, across okay. his 12-year career at Gloucestershire to say, hey, do you fancy, you know, in the Mercer style, do you fancy mm. playing a few games a year and coming to the major tournaments? But, yeah, it never happened. And this was November 2010, so it wasn't even to do oh, with right. the World Cup. Before then, and, okay. And they didn't play any international cricket, but they played the Mumbai Cricket Association 11, the Pune Club, and the Dr. D.Y. Patil Sports Academy. <laughs> so uh, he, he must have been devastated after playing in the Pune Club match, Hamish Marshall, that he got dropped for the D.Y. <laughs> Patil Sports Academy 11 versus Ireland. Got one more here for you, Jeff, from George Norman. He said uh, that is about the number we talked about before, the $9.75 that relates to India being 97 for five all out in 1976. One extra piece of information, says George, was that in the previous test, India had run down 406 in the fourth innings. Of course, which is a test match we've talked about before, the run chase featuring Bridgesh Patel, final word, fave. Great scorecard. You can just read that scorecard. It's better than a movie. Uh, I've done it many times. I went back and had another look at it today and enjoyed it greatly. Uh, he said, the West Indies spinners, says George, bowled 90 largely fruitless overs. And uh, the Sunil Gavaskar comment about 
being all out, not bowled out, was uh, taken from his autobiography, which George describes as uh, an ugly tome that Archie <laughs> McLaren would have been proud of. Okay. Well, I've, uh, I'm now intrigued to read it. I'm going to have to track down that book and, and see what that means. Why, why am I not surprised to hear that? Um, speaking of films, went to the cinema the other night. We were going to go to the, the oh, yeah. BFIs, Rach and I, on a bit of a date. In the end, we mm. went and saw the George Clooney, Julia Roberts rom-com set in Bali, and it was fucking good. So if you're into that kind of oh, yeah. thing, I can recommend I say it was fucking good. It's probably not going to win any awards, but you know, if you know what you're getting into, it's it's Clooney being playing Clooney mm-hmm. and Julia Roberts playing Julia Roberts, pretty much. That's what it. That's what it amounts to. You know, it's just the two of them being really nice, funny people. I rewatched uh, Juno on the plane oh, on the way home. What I'll a tell movie. you what, what I've forgotten what a how good that was. Yeah. Like I knew it was good, but I've forgotten just how good every performance is. I've forgotten how much of a treasure Alice and Jenny is yeah, in that role. Absolutely. I mean. You know, I'd forgot, completely forgotten that Jason Bateman was in it, being his like foppish, irritating self. Yeah, yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary series of performances. Great, great soundtrack, and um, I remember Bell and Sebastian being featured prominently with um, Mike Piazza, New York catcher. Um, I remember watching Mike Piazza play with my brother when we went out to watch the New York Mets many years ago on a holiday. So, and lots of other lovely songs. It's a, it's yeah. I, I'm going to rewatch Juno on the way home if it's available to me. I'll yeah. do that thing with Rachel. We'll go one two, three, and try and hit the screen at the same time. I doubt Winnie will be having that, by the way, but, you know, you can dream. Yeah, you can dream that she might sleep for 90 <laughs> minutes. All you need is 90 minutes. Uh, and, you know, it'll it, it's, it's a movie about having babies that'll be more relaxing than actually having babies. Quite possibly. This has been Storytime 109. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contribute to it, our weekend history show will continue through the Australian summer. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Drop a number in there. A pledge will do the rest. And also, it gets you onto Discord. I've said it a few times and we've been receiving some DMs on Patreon. If you want to be on Discord and already on Patreon, DMS and I'll slip you the key to the back door. It is a beautiful place to talk about cricket, as I'm sure it will be throughout the course of the World Cup, uh, where I will be joining you, Jeff, in a couple of days. Yes, let us voyage to the distant land of Geelong together, <laughs> where we will discover uh, parts unknown. Uh, well, that sounds suggestive, but uh, well, <laughs> well, we'll see how the next few weeks pan out. Uh, this has been the Final Word Story Time. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. It's edited by Dave Collins, no relation, and it's listened to by you. We'll see you next week. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it.